It's July 12th, 2021. This is Rook. He is an Iranian-American former CEO turned popular social media commentator who has made it his mission to travel to every United Nations recognized country in the world. And he's pretty much done it. Farhad Kashani, maybe in his late 60s, but he still calls himself a kid and he lives life with unbridled passion. He's an author, a pilot, a car journalist, and a member of the Traveler's Century Club. But now Farhad is also a hit internet presence with over 100,000 followers on Instagram and fans around the world, a feature interview with the self-proclaimed 68-year-old kid, plus your letters of the week. This is stories from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 126 of Rook. 126. Yes. You know what I have to say to that? Hope you're keeping well wherever you are. Tuning in from around the world. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam Dustan Aziz, Durud Shoma. We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity coming to you on rookmedia.com. Or if you want to head straight to one of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and CastBox. If you want to see some of the visuals with Rook that uh, Savvy Roham and Captain Reza work on, switch over to Instagram or YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and Persian, check us out on Telegram. Hello, the fabulous Keon. Hi, Gian. <laughs> Hello, Captain Reza. <laughs> Hello, sir. Hello, Hello. Hello Reza John. <laughs> and hello, Groovy Shia. We're all here. Fadahad Kashani, the world traveler, the 68-year-old kid coming up. He's quite a wonder. I mean, so he's made it his mission. Not only has he been a car journalist, a pilot, and a, uh, a CEO of various companies in various countries around the world. He's made it his mission to become part of this Traveler Century Club and uh, more than just a century, he's he, like, I guess you become a member of the club if you've gone to 100 countries or more. Mm. So he's over 200, oh. and he, he makes it his life ambition to, to make sure he's seen every country in the world. I have about 70 left, so maybe I'll get there. <laughs> what do you mean? I've, oh, I've to get to 100. It. Yeah, oh, to get to 100. I it's yeah. 200. I'm like, wow. <laughs> no, I yeah. wish. Did I you wish. count them? I did, actually. I know. In anticipation of this interview, I was thinking, should I count the countries that I've been to? But I, I didn't. You uh, haven't? You should. No. I mean, it seems a bit, uh, but I mean, all respect to Fathog Kashani, <laughs> but I, yeah, I don't know. It seems like kind of. I was curious. I wanted to know. Wait a minute. Maybe I'm almost there, but not no. quite. 
Well, I'm oh. looking forward to talking to him. He, he's a he's a very interesting guy, and he's become this really popular Instagrammer, uh, which is also fascinating. This mm. this Persian man, former CEO, who's yeah. does these stories <laughs> on Instagram, like you know his kids or something, right? Yeah, or you yeah. know his daughter. I met his daughter randomly while traveling in Greece, actually, which right. was crazy. Right. And and then when I learned we were bringing him on the show, I was like, wait a minute, I know his daughter. I know he's got Small some great world. stories. He's written a number of books about uh, uh, being in management. And, and advice books, but he has opinions about everything, you know. And mm-hmm. so, anyway, we'll get to the 68 year old kid, uh, Fadhad Kashani, in, in just a little bit. Uh, he'll be in San Francisco or the Bay Area, I should say. Let's let's get something out of the way. <laughs> I was <laughs> waiting. Right. Like, when so, is he going to bring it up? The Euro 2021 football <laughs> tournament ended yesterday. I, I know a lot of Iranians love football and soccer, and so I've talked about it on this program. It's it's my favorite sport as well, and I know happens to be the only sport I've ever played well, quite frankly. So so it meant a lot to me to be watching Euro, as I always do, and to be rooting for the country of my birth, England. Now, when I was a little kid, you know, when I was a little kid growing up in England, I had this little uh, soccer game. You know, it's mm-hmm. a tabletop foosball. soccer. It kind of like foosball, but it was like a, you know, a like portable a version. The okay. mini one, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and uh, it was called the Bobby Charlton football game or something like that and i never knew what that meant i mean because it was uh, sort of it was some guy's name or something but i played this for years and then later on i found out that before i was born there was a team in 1966 that bobby charlton was yes. part of that won the world cup yes. right um so never in my lifetime this was years before i was born the, the glory years of england and all that so since that time i always wanted england to win a world tournament, and of course, they never have. Yes. Now, uh, fast forward to Euro 2021, <laughs> and England is one of the, the favorites, as you guys know. Now, what did I say, yep. Shia? What did I say on the first beginning of this tournament? What did I say on this program? You said that uh, England at the beginning, it raised some expectation, <laughs> but at the end, you, you're, you're yeah. always going to be heartbroken yes, at yes, the end. Yes. I, I said this repeatedly, yeah. right? And every time people would write to me and go, no, this is like, Gian, this team, they're going to do it. Yeah, it's yeah. coming home. And I was like, just wait, just wait. We're going to have our hearts broken. Now, of course, as everyone in the world knows, um, we we had our hearts broken. And those of us who support England uh, lost, you know, uh, at the last very in in, in most of the, the most brutal way yeah. in penalty kicks. And and I got to say, I love young Saka. He's an Arsenal player as well. I don't blame those kids who you know they missed mm-hmm. the, the shots at the end. I mean, it, it, this is like, but but anyway, I, sure enough, we lost as I expected. Uh, it was a horrible day. I was, I was, you know, in a bad. I was asabi last oh. night, right? But that's expected. The heartbreak. Now, little did I know the vultures I'm surrounded by on this Rook team. Like, I mean, this was, how could I, I'm working with these people. How, how did I not know the type of people I'm, I mean, Jen Sishun, bad Jens. So Shia, of course, lovely Shia, who, who has great taste, is a supporter for, I don't know why, but is a supporter of England and is the only one of the few Iranians I can find. Who, but Shia was unavailable. So uh, the moment England loses, and I am just in a foul, you know, you know why I was upset? Because I, I really, uh, I, I never let up. I never let up with keeping my guard up going, we're going to lose, we're going to lose, we're going to yes, lose. Yes. And then somehow... 
in that first half of the game when England scored for uh, I let my guard down. I was like, you know what? <laughs> we might we might win this thing, you know? <laughs> like I was like texting with friends, oh, I, I don't know, let's see. <laughs> and of course, oh, you know, so I am genuinely upset. Back to my little Bobby Charlton game, you know, uh, growing up in England, wanting my team, you know, nothing, you know, we lose again. And so then the, the WhatsApp, the Rook WhatsApp group starts firing up. <laughs> so first Susan, you know, <laughs> producer Susan, texts, you know, she's starting to text Italian fly. No, <laughs> by the way, nothing against the, the uh, yeah. congrats to the Italian team, great yeah. team, some great players. A lot of my Italian friends are already happy. That, that, great, I'm good for you. Yeah. In fact, Toronto's a city of a lot of Italians, yes. and so yeah. it's always a big, big deal when Italy wins something. So, uh, fantastic, fine, okay. But Susan starts texting the, the Italian flag. Yeah. Now, I was really angry at that, but <laughs> But I, I thought, listen, Susan, producer Susan, for those who don't know, she works here on work, spent a, a bunch of years in Italy, yeah. right? I mean, so she's, and she speaks Italian, yes. and she's a fan of it. Yes. So, I mean, this is okay. Yes. I mean, Susan gets, yes. that's her. She gets a pass. Then this Keon starts. <laughs> I mean, this Keon. <laughs> First of all, I don't know if she's ever watched a soccer game in her life, right? Keon starts with the, and it's, <laughs> She's like, ole, ole. She's taunting me. <laughs> you know, and then I'm like, first, my first message back is, guys, not some of us are not so happy, you know. And then she chirps back right away. She's like, oh, who's, ooh, would you like a milk toasty? Like she's, you know, she's basically trolling me. But to right? be clear, Susan June, producer Susan, she started this. Listen, Su <laughs> and it was I have no problem with Susan. Susan spent years in Italy. How the, and then Savvy Roham, then the entire, turns out, the entire Rook team all of a sudden yeah, is Team Italy, yeah. right? Soon as they find out that I'm, uh, you know, I, I mean, I couldn't understand what was going on. It was, I, I mean, I didn't even know why we, why don't we change the name? Conversations from to and about the Italian diaspora. Since everybody's home is Reza, you know, no, no, the Reza no. all the time. You say to say Italia Kujas. I swear to God, I was rooting for England to win. Why? Simply for because I had to go to Saint Clair. I had to meet somebody, and I I knew it was going to be traffic. Yeah, your ex was I Italian, though. Even you would now. have it would be okay. You'd yeah, be like, I okay, was. I was married to an Italian. This Keon, I don't. I mean. <laughs> Did you, okay, did hate, you even watch the game? I, I you, watched all the games. Okay, I hated right. Italy a week ago because I was Team Spain. Exactly, I was all about Team exactly. Spain. But, but I, given the choice I to vote for a team mm. to for the guy who sits next to you and is grew up in England versus, you know, chirping at me. I just hate England fans. I really do. <laughs> and I couldn't handle a Monday where England won with Gian. I was like, please, I can't I handle it. <laughs> Could it like one little moment a child playing with his Bobby Charlton game? She couldn't, you know, give me that moment of pleasure. Oh, and it just continues, you know. She's like, ah, like, I mean, you know, up this until is, now, literally. It's yeah, just yeah, I was still at it. Yeah. I mean, she didn't even like. Can you name an Italian player on the team? Have you been to Italy? Well, you've probably been, been to Italy. Oh. <laughs> Stories from to and about the Italian diaspora, <laughs> folks. Yeah. All of our guests from now on. Oh, Keon, you can go uh, find our guests. You can all just be go. Italian. <laughs> Actually, just, just go. go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 
savvy Roham. He's like sending out pictures of the cop, you know, like everybody's all excited. I was on the plane. I couldn't defend. No, yeah, you were, you were flying. You had gone away for the weekend and you were coming back and I knew you weren't there. So I was left alone. I mean, I was terrorized. It was like a, you know, I don't know, the scene from Barbarella where all the little, little animals are, ch- are, are biting at her heels and stuff, you know? Ganging up on you. Ganging up. I, yeah, I was like. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't start it, so let's just put no, that No, no, no. Susan. Susan. <laughs> Susan started I had to show my support for Susan. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you were doing, showing your support for Susan. Anyway, there you go. Another another tournament, another loss. I mean, now we look there's to the world. There's always next year. They're always sure. There's mm-hmm. next year the World Literally Cup. I mean, uh, we will be having this conversation next year. We'll be, you know, it'll sometime before the Probably quarterfinals. Earlier. It'll be England could win this one, and I'll get excited and I'll wear my jersey and I'll, you know. Oh, I have a question for you, Jean. Yeah. What if next year Iran goes to the finals mm-hmm. with England? Who would you be rooting for? Oh, good I think hypothetically, I would be. In that case, I would probably be rooting for Iran mm-hmm. because it'd be such underdogs. It'd be oh, so exciting, time. Team yeah. Ali, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, fortunately, that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Although I suspect, you know, Team Iran would have better luck than. I mean, England is just so sad sack. It's like, you know, you just kind of know, you know, that it's gonna. And when Italy, oh, I don't, I'm just like go on for this. <laughs> Fat hard caution. He's waiting for us. But uh, yeah, anyway. Hey, a shout out to Reza Ghazi. Reza Ghazi and Greenflow Financial. So Greenflow Financial is a multi-award winning mortgage lending and brokerage firm with offices based out of Toronto and Ottawa here in Canada. This firm takes pride in its utilization of technology in all aspects of the business operations. Very um, digitally forward company. The founder and CEO is Reza Ghazi and Reza is a bundle of positive energy and an award-winning philanthropist and volunteer who has given so much back to the Persian community, continues to do so, please check out Greenflow Financial for all your mortgage lending and brokerage needs, greenflow.ca. Greenflow.ca is the site. Uh, Argentina won big, yeah, too. Did you I know guess. that? Yeah. Yes, yes. I was happy for that. Thank yeah, for, mm-hmm. for Messi. It's Messi's first cup, right? Yes. It's exciting. I didn't dare say anything because then Keon would be like <laughs> start team sending Brazil. messages to team, team Brazil. Yeah, you're not wrong. We had a great, um, great response to our last show with uh, Firuz Zahidi and that interview, and people are really uh, digging that. and And uh, you can find that on any of our platforms. But I know we got a bunch of letters. Yeah, for sure. Now I wanted to announce that we. A crown. Well, when we do the letters of the week at the end of the Monday shows, we crown a letter, the letter of the week. We being Keon picks the letter of the week, um, sometimes controversially, but uh, most of the time it's a, it's a good letter. And, uh, you know, we always say, well, what is, a, what is the person who gets the letter of the week get, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we are going to give them something, which is Ponta the Artist is working on the website. And so uh, if you have the letter of the week, you will go onto our website. The letter of the week will now be archived on our website with your name and a little trophy next to it. Uh, so uh, you just go to our website, rookmedia.com, and there's a new section there under extras for letters of the week. So send your letters to info at rookmedia.com, info at rookmedia.com, or just post your comments on any of our platforms. You could have the letter of the week, and you'll be up there on our website. You've got some good letters this week? Yeah, definitely. They- 
they, I mean, how could they not enjoy Firuz Zahidi? He was just he was so really fascinating. Great. He was really yeah. great. He was really good. And I exchanged some messages with him, and he uh, he himself really enjoyed listening to it. And also enjoyed our conversation afterwards about uh, the interview, because I think it was the first time that Keon hasn't said something <laughs> negative about one of our guests. I, first time she searching. didn't piss off the guest who would vow not to come back on Raw. Searching in my heart, say something bad about him. Something. There was nothing. I had nothing. Uh, it was great. You can find, uh, actually, we put up a, a Rook moment uh, with uh, Fidu's Zahid. ID, including the visuals from that, our, our video version at our Instagram and at our YouTube Extras channel. Uh, check that out at Rook Media. All right, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, the fabulous Kiam. We'll get to letters of the week in a little bit, but let's get to our feature guest. My feature guest today is a former CEO turned popular social media commentator who has made it his mission to travel to every United Nations recognized country in the world. And he has pretty much done it. Fadhod Kashani is an Iranian American bundle of energy who has achieved a lifetime worth of feats in his 68 years. He's a retired high tech executive who has been a pilot, a motorcyclist, a car and aviation journalist, a management consultant, an author and a world traveler who's been to 192 of the 195 United Nations countries in every single U.S. state and territory. Fadhod was born in Tehran. He studied agricultural engineering at Shiraz University before moving to the United States in the period after the 1979 revolution. In the U.S., he worked towards an MBA and went on to become a successful CEO as well as an international corporate leader who has managed facilities in Iran, the United States, Taiwan, Mexico, the UK, the Netherlands, and Germany. He has written eight books about management, cars, and aircraft, and an autobiography called The 60-Year-Old Kid, and a book about his travels called 200 Countries in 45 Years. These days, you can catch him on his very popular Instagram channel, where he regales his 100,000 followers with opinions, ideas, and adventure videos, and right now... Fadhod Kashani joins me from the Bay Area in the United States. Hello, sir. Hi. Thank you very much for your nice introduction. I just make a correction that I got my MBA back in Iran from what it was known at that time was a Harvard Business School, which was called Merkez Mutalaat Mudiriyat Iran, Iran Center for Management Studies. I insist to say that so that uh, people know that that was the level of education at that time. That's when I got my MBA. And over here, I just worked using all those skills that I've earned in that MBA program. I appreciate the correction, and I appreciate the information. By the way, I mean, are you catching your breath at the moment? Should you not be traveling somewhere? Should you not be in some exotic place, <laughs> adding countries no, to the list? <laughs> I, it's funny that I traveled to the last country that I could, which was Yemen, uh, in uh, November of 2019 which was right before COVID. And I remember people were telling me that, hey, what, what's the rush? You know, we can wait and do these countries, you know, one at a time, uh, one per year, something like that. And after the COVID started, some people told me that, did you know something about the COVID coming, that you're rushing to finish all these United Nations countries? 
And I said, yes, I guess so, you know. <laughs> so I'm happy I did it at that time because I know it's going to be much more difficult. It, it takes a global pandemic to keep this man down, to keep him uh, <laughs> from hopping on a plane. <laughs> you know, let me start with a general uh, question for you and a, and a general sort of uh, overview of, of the life of Farhad Kashani before I get into some details that I'm really eager to ask you about. On your website, Farhadjan, you say something about sure. believing that nothing is impossible I mean, you really seem like someone who has made it your mission to pursue your passions, whether it's about founding new businesses in new countries or traveling the globe. Is it is it really about believing that anything is possible? Yes, I believe that's the case. And uh, uh, all it takes is a hard work, focus uh, and some patience because you're not going to see the results immediately. It takes a while. Some of them are longer-term goals. Some of them are shorter-term goals. But bottom line is, you know, if you have the patience, you're going to get it. I have some of the Instagram people or the followers who tell me that, I mean, they see my car or my whatever camper, RV, and they say, oh, I wish I had one of those not right now. And I ask them, how old are you? The guy says, like, 20, 25. And they say, well, at that age, my goal was to have a Ferrari at the age of 50. And it took me 51 years before I buy my first Ferrari. So, you know, trying to get something at the age of 2025, 20, that's going to be a, a wishful thinking. It's not going to happen that fast. I mean, I love the title of one of your books, The 60-Year-Old Kid, uh, that you had right. given yourself. I mean, although you are 67 now, 67 years young, do, do you yeah. think you act like a kid? I do. And <laughs> I think that's the key to the life and the livelihood, that you have to act like a kid and don't ever let your age bother you with, I can't do this because I'm old. I can't do that because I can't walk anymore or I can't talk anymore. So I don't buy into those things. And do others see you as a kid? I mean, do you, do you get judged, yeah. judged by people? Like, uh, do you get at, at this age, what are you doing running around the world? Uh, do people actually say that to you? Yeah, I always look weird to some other people who think that, your travel means you have to go to Hawaii once a year, uh, or in Iran, you have to go to Dubai once a year, or go to Turkey once a year. So what I do, going to some of these countries that you cannot find them on the map, to other people, especially the Iranians who are not adventurous in general, that looks weird. Do you find that uh, Iranians are not adventurous in general? Not at all. You know, do you see people there that, I remember I bumped into a person in Iran who told me that, oh yeah, my uncle has traveled probably equal to your travels. He's done like 200. I said, wow, that's great. That's perfect. What is, you know, how, what countries he's gone to? He said he's, he's been to Dubai 50 times. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, well, I don't think that counts. If I go that way, I've been probably to 1,000 countries. <laughs> it's true. There are people, I mean, this is obviously a, a gross generalization, but, but I mean, there may be some truth. There are folks like, for example, Australians who are really into travel. I mean, it's part of the rite of passage. You, you in your late teens, in your early 20s you leave australia you go see the world uh every australian i've ever known does some version of that or has their family doing that uh iranians you would think um would be into travel because they would want to explore the world given that 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 iran hasn't been the most um well it's been a, a, a repressed country in some ways over the last 40 years uh it's interesting that wh why do you think we're less adventurous 
Well, when I see uh, people, first of all, in our club, I'm the first Iranian who joined this uh, Traveler's Century Club, the club that people who have traveled to at least 100 countries, they can become a member. When you don't see any other Iranians, but you see Chinese heritage people, Americans, Australians, uh, Europeans, but not Iranians, you wonder why. I mean, Iranians could afford probably to go to all these places more than anybody else, especially the Iranians in the U.S. who are mostly well-off, or at least in the Silicon Valley area where I live, they're well-off. But I don't see that sense of adventure in them. They just want to go to Europe for the umpteen times, do some shopping and come back. For me, it's like shopping is not even part of it. any travel. I've never done any shopping anywhere, you know, except for the refrigerator magnets that I buy. every country that I go, that's it. You know, I don't go there for shopping. I go there to learn about people, the culture, whatever. And that curiosity, I believe, does not exist in the Iranians in the current age. By the way, I want to get to the Traveler's Century Club, which I uh, did some research on. It seems like it's, it is a pretty exclusive club. It's about 1,400 people or so uh, in the world who've done this, uh, who've reached this milestone, or at least the ones who are in the club of 100 countries or more. Now, you, uh, before I leave the notion of you being a kid, I want to say this in a delicate way because I don't want to be ageist, and, and I think I've mentioned this to you in the past, but... Um, one of the things that very much surprised me about your social media presence is that we're just not used to seeing uh, an Instagram star who isn't super young. I mean, the influencers tend to be teenagers or in their 20s or 30s. H- how do you feel about the fact that you've become a social media star? Well, I think uh, it feels good and it's in line with what I've written about, the 60-year-old kid. That means that I want to remain a kid. I don't want to, you know, change my behavior based on my age and all that. So I want to be able to communicate with the people who are much younger than me, or 20s, 30s, 40s. I can be just like them and talk about the same things that uh, are their interest. So, and I think I've been successful, Thomas, to some extent. Farhad, were you always into adventure, a desire to travel, go to new places when you were a kid in Iran? Uh, I would say... Uh, when I, up until the time I was 18 and I went to the uh, Shiraz University, obviously the travels were uh, controlled by parents. So whenever or whatever they went, we just followed them. But ever since I did my own travels, uh, especially the uh, foreign travels, the first one was to India right around the time I was in the uh, last year of the college. Uh, that uh, was very, very interesting for me. And I thought that that's what I want to do. You know, I want to travel more. Now, f- of course, I have to go a little bit earlier than that. When I was 14, I read about Umidvar, uh, Umidvar Brothers' uh, adventures. And at that time, it was like reading their books at the age of 14. It was mesmerizing for me that can I do the same thing one day? And of course, later on, I became almost friends with one of them uh, in Iran. And uh, I don't see myself at, as at their category. They're like a whole different ballgame. You know, this is like 1954, going to those foreign places with a motorcycle. Uh, that was uh, quite an adventure. I've never done anything close to that. My travels are mostly with airplanes, going from one airport to the other airport. Not even like the people who go by motorcycle or by land somehow. Most of my travels have been by flying. And... Uh, So, yeah, at the age of 14, I had that idea, but I never knew that I could 
materialize it until I went to India. And then following the, the graduation and military service, I started coming to U.S., went to Europe. And I remember going back from London to Tehran. I was not going to do it in normal way, which was just take, get an airplane ticket, get on board and get off uh, in, in Tehran. I wanted to see as many countries as I could see between London and Tehran. So I studied a lot of different possibilities and a family I found that a mad the bus called magic bus which was a kind of a tourist bus and they were doing uh, a lot of travels for hippies from tehran to indonesia and people could get off get on at any point they wanted so i took that bus and went to tehran and doing that i saw a lot of countries in between so those are the beginning of this whole process yeah I want to come back to the traveling um, because it's so fascinating what you've done, but let's get a, a bit of a sense of the career you've had and the interests you've had over the years. You started writing about cars and motorcycles and planes over 40 years ago, and, and you've noted that you were the first Iranian to write about cars and motorcycles in Iran. I mean, you're a guy who did agricultural engineering in school. What was it about cars and bikes and planes that you wanted to write about? Yeah, you know, I <clears throat> I was going to become an airline pilot, mainly Iran Air. And at the age of 18, I remember when I finished my high school, I burned all my books. And my, my dad told me, that, hey, why don't you keep them? You never know. I said, no, no, no. I want to become an airline pilot. I don't need to read these books. I don't need to read any book at all, not knowing that how many books I'm going to read in the rest of my life. Anyway, so uh, I went for the test. And sure enough, I was cut of one. So I was rejected. So I was not quite ready for it. I was not ready for any university. I had not gone to any preparation classes for concours, you know, the tests that we had over there. So as a result, I was admitted to agricultural engineering, and that was just a matter of luck because for someone who had not studied at all for the university entrance exam, I did, you know, not bad. But my goal was, you know, somehow stay close to what I liked. And in less than a year, I started flying on a, a personal basis, private basis, and, uh, you know, continued my love for motorcycles, for cars. But in 1980, I started, I translated a book that I had bought in the U.S. about the Porsche family. I translated it into Persian and summarized it, sent it to this magazine named Machine Magazine, which was just publishing, and they printed it. They liked it, and they asked me if, if I can write more. So I translated more, I translated more, and then at some point, less than a year maybe, I decided that why don't I write one of my own articles. I wrote my own article, they printed it, and then little by little I changed the mix from translating to writing. And that's how I became a writer. And even sometimes doing things that later on, years later, these Top Gear guys did, what they did, I was doing it much earlier than them. You know, taking three cars from three different friends or bringing the friends and run all kind of tests, videotaping it, putting the videos on my sites, which was hacked at some point and I lost all those videos. So yeah, I was doing a lot of these things that I do in my Instagram. I was doing it like 30 years ago and putting it on my own personal uh, sites. Just parenthetically, Farhad, I, I, if you'll forgive me for a question that I, I'm sure is a naive one, when you say you couldn't become a commercial pilot because of uh, yeah. color blindness, why? why? Why is that an issue yeah. in terms of flying a commercial flight? A few things. Uh, there are some 
LED lights inside the airplane or different lights of different color that each means something else, something if you don't read it right, if you don't see the red as in red, if you see it as amber, it, might, it can have a different meaning. Oh, right. And when you're landing the airplane, <clears throat> there are two sets of or two or three sets of lights in front of you that from far distance, maybe one or two miles, you can look at the series of those lights and that will tell you if you're too high or too low. And those happen to be red and green oh. and sometimes amber. I never was able to take advantage of those lights. I always have to use my depth to understand that you know, how far I am from the landing or am I too high or am I too low? Whereas other people can look at two different things. One is their own eyes. The other one is looking at those lights. The lights will tell you if they are too high or too I low. I got it. I got it. But I, take, I took advantage of that in one of my management works that I did, and I made a lot of money out of this for being colorblind. I made a lot of money <laughs> for being colorblind. Do, do tell. <laughs> that's, that's too interesting for me to let go. What do, you, what do you mean by that? I just had become a quality manager of the computer company in the division that they were producing color monitors. So here I am. The colorblind guy becomes the manager of quality of this company. And I was thinking that, okay, I hope that I can handle this because I just became, it was only a week I moved from supervisor to manager. All of a sudden, they called me and they said, all these monitors that they're producing for one particular company, I remember the name was Data Points. It was in Texas. We were producing 5,000 color monitors. They, they have two military or uh, retired Air Force inspectors. They come and take a small sample. Let's say you give them 1,000 units. They look at the military standards and they say, okay, based on the 1,000, we're going to take 15 samples. And in those 15 samples, if one fails, we reject the whole lot. You have to go back and rework 1,000 units, open up each and every box, plug them in, look at the colors again and see if those things that they're talking about, right. the colors are not very good, whatever. Anyway, so... Obviously, I could not be a judge in the color issue, but because I knew that I'd, I'd taken this test and I failed this test, I knew that 10% of people have this problem, 10% of the men, not the women. So I bought the book in 1984. I still have it in my library here. I had all the operators tested, and sure enough, 10% of them failed. So that improved the quality a little, just 10% because of those guys who did not see the colors as you know, just like me. They were just like me. The next thing that came to my mind is, how about those two inspectors? I knew that Air Force inspectors have to pass this test. But I, th I thought, what if they didn't? So I called the first guy who was actually passing all our lots with flying colors. He had no problem. He passed it. Then I called the second guy. And he's the guy who's rejecting all these lots. And he's writing, blue is mixed with purple and whatever, whatever. And I asked him, could you read this book? It's a book that you see that in different pages. There's a number or letter. If your eyes works perfectly, you can read those things. If you're like me, you look at a bunch of dots, you cannot make sense out of it. Mm. So I put this book in front of the guy and said, could you read this for me? The guy said, this is nothing. I said, that's what I say. But they call me colorblind. <laughs> so the, <laughs> at, at that moment, the guy figured out that now I have, I know what his trick is. He has probably faked his colorblindness test when he became an inspector for the Air Force. And now as a retired guy, he's making good money. He was making $35 an hour. This is 1984. A lot of money. Anyways, he said, 
you don't report me to my bosses, I will not reject your lots. <laughs> I did not do this because of, you know, this uh, some sort of game or whatever. I knew that he cannot see. Therefore, everything that he has written is just a bunch of bullshit. Wow. You know, because he could not see those colors. How could he see it? Because I couldn't see it. Immediately, our yield went from like 65% almost acceptance rate to over 99%. Wow. I got 25% raise and everybody was saying, this guy's great. And they didn't, they didn't know what the recipe is and everybody was interested. I, of course, I couldn't tell them because I didn't want to jeopardize this guy's job. So everything solved. Everybody was happy. The product was good because the other inspector who was not colorblind was not rejecting anything. And, you know, so that's why I take advantage of every possibility in my life. I turn a failure into a success if right. I could. Right. This was one of them. Somebody once told me that any crisis or any difficulty in your life, you can turn around and see as an opportunity. And that's right. uh, that's exactly what you've just talked about there. Right. Uh, you mentioned that you came to the United States in 1981 in the aftermath right. of the revolution. And you also, I know, start writing political articles for the Iran Tribune in California from 1981 to 1984. Uh, right. Because of that, you lose your Iranian passport for about 20 years. But right. nevertheless, you end up becoming in America a very successful businessman. How did that happen? How do you work your way up to high-tech company executive over the, those 20 years? I did a reverse engineering on myself. So I started taking inventory of what do I know? Well, I have an MBA, agriculture engineer, but not interested in agriculture. But I've had, I've had, I have an MBA, so I should take advantage of some of the things that I've learned there. I, first of all, getting hired in a company was the most difficult thing for me at that time because here I am with a resume that says at the age of 26, 27, I've been a managing director of a company, even though it was just for a month. I have done my military service, not related to these people who want to hire me. Right. And anyways, I could not find a job. I went to a resume consultant. I paid $50. The guy said, you know what? You know, this education was in Iran and people don't count on it. So... What, uh, what you can do is make it very simple. Make it a high school diploma. Get into the company that you have in mind. If you have all these qualifications that you claim you have, you're going to move out very fast. Otherwise, you know, you just have a regular job. Yeah. And that's what I did. I started as a quality inspector, $6.5 an hour. Got into the job. And uh, less than three months, something happened. They gave me a project. I did it. And my boss called me. I said, are you sure you don't have any advanced degrees? I said, I have a bachelor's degree in agriculture engineering. He said, why did you lie on your application? I said, well, because I couldn't find, get the job. That's why I did it. So three, four months later, there was another project that nobody could do it. And somehow my name came up. I did it. And my boss calls me again. Are you sure you don't have anything beyond bachelor's degree? I said, yes, I do have an MBA too. He said, if you have a PhD, tell me now. Because if you tell me later, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> <laughs> That was the start of my going up, and I did the reverse engineering on myself, looking at newspapers, see what jobs are available that somehow matches my background. I bumped into reliability engineering and quality engineering, two things that require a lot of statistics, and I had statistics in my agricultural engineering and in my MBA. So I started taking those classes. I became certified reliability engineer, certified quality engineer. So I got my wings through those things became a quality manager, became a director of quality. 
Then I started taking production courses, became certified in production and inventory management, which was six four-hour tests. <clears throat> and then I became a director of operation. Then I became VP of operation, then senior VP of operation. So that's how I managed it. I, I really actually, I love that story. I love that yeah. story because it sounds like a cliche when they say work your way from the bottom up, but you know, the, the guy who starts in the mail room, the Jeff Bezos kind of story, you know, but it yeah. really is something that is, I mean, I firmly believe in, and I think that there are a lot of, um, I don't want to say just Iranian kids because I think it generalizes, but there's a lot of uh, new generation folks who, especially if they get a degree, they kind of want to enter a field at uh, some with some status of some kind. And I know for the fields that I've worked in, whether it's media or communications or entertainment, uh, I've always given the same advice, which is get your foot in the door. If you're great, it's not that hard to get, you know, to, to work your way up very quickly in radio or in music or in sure. media. If you're that good, get your foot in the door and do anything. Just do anything. Say you'll do anything. Say you'll help out however you can. And you're living proof of that in the business world, I guess. Uh, I cannot agree more with you. And even at this age, which I'm dealing with age discrimination to enter into a company, especially with my resume. The people don't want you to, you know, go back and start from the bottom after you've been the CEO. If I could, if there was any way I could erase my resume today and make myself just a regular employee, you know, ten, fifteen dollars an hour, I go to Tesla and start working my way up from Tesla again. Unfortunately, these days with all these uh, LinkedIn and Google and they search you, they, you know, whatever. It's hard to lie. You know, I can't say I'm a high school diploma looking for a job. As and soon as and, you and say what? That, they think like, that you're going to command or demand too much pay or you're going to yes, be? Right. Yeah. And I've been rejected a few times by companies even for, uh, when I applied for a lower job because I knew that I'm like a spring. You just you know put me anywhere and I jump up. But uh, they don't accept you and they can check your background and all that stuff. So. With all your success in the U.S., you make an interesting decision in 2002, and you have a family in the Bay Area. You decide to move back to Iran, and uh, very quickly, or over a, few, a number of years, you become a successful exec there for LG. You're back and forth from Iran to the States uh, until 2013. Uh, what was the incentive for you to want to return to Iran after you'd had the kind of success you'd had in business in America? I always wanted to prove myself in different environments, uh, saying that I can do these things in any environment. Because there are people who believe that if you're successful in Iran, or a man good manager in Iran, you cannot be a good one in U.S., and vice versa. I wanted to prove to myself that I can do it. And there were a few people who wanted to bet with me <laughs> that you get fired from your job in Iran in one month because it's so political. You cannot survive there. And I was trying to prove that... I know I put me in any environment and I can manage it very well. And that's what I did. And as a matter of fact, one of the people who started working for me in Iran now is working for Tesla. He's a manager. He is managing the best service department of Tesla among all North America departments of Tesla, 157 of them. How could he become the best? And this guy in Iran, he made us number one in the entire nation three years in a row for all commercial vehicles. We were number one in customer satisfaction, in service, and quality of service. 
And now he's doing the same thing here. That means that a good manager is a good manager anywhere in the world. Well, a good manager is a good manager, but I'm, I'm actually curious that provokes a sort of question in me, which is that uh, there is a popular notion in our community, our global community, that uh, sometimes we say it with some derision, you know, or some sarcasm, which is that Iranians are different to deal with in business than Western folks. Even when we're talking about, you know, investors for Rook, for this program, people have said to me, oh, you know, be careful of the Iranian businesses. Not like you, the, the Canadian businessman that you grew up knowing, knowing here in Canada or something like that. Did you find that? I mean, did you find that you had to be a different kind of person when you're an executive in Iran than you are, or in the Iranian community than you are when you're an executive uh, of, of an American company in the United States? You know, the two years that I was working for that LG brand uh, as a senior VP and plant manager, I was hired to make that factory like an American company. That's what the goal of the owners were. That's how they found me. That's how they offered me. Therefore, I gave, I, they gave me free hand to do whatever modification I need to do to make that place. It's like a 21st century company. And that's what I did. And they supported me. <clears throat> when we opened the Aria Diesel, which was my partnership with the same guys, they offered it to me. Uh, they said, you know, you become the CEO as long as you uh, put your skin in the game too which I did, I put some money to. That company from day one, I created an American, a good run American company inside Iran. The culture was an American culture. The people who work there, they know that anywhere they go, they get a good job because they have been, you know, they've been trained in a very good culture. And I was telling them that I promise you that if you move from here to the States, other than for your English, the rest of it, you can find a job very easily because you have been brought up in this kind of environment. In terms of investment, yes, Iranians are a different breed in terms of investment. For example, here, if you start a company, just because you have a great idea, you may get 10, 20%, whatever percent of the shares of the company because of your idea. In Iran, idea does not have any value. <laughs> the question is how much money you're going to put in. Your money is the number of shares that you get. And that was true about Arya Diesel. It's true about even the startup companies. I think they're still the same. Why is that? Why, why does the idea have less uh, dominion in Iran? <clears throat> because we are not used to it. I mean, these ideas that you can work for Google and make $2 billion is just unheard of. And they don't believe it. They don't think it can happen in Iran. And they don't think the idea is worth that much. As a result, it's like, okay, how much are you going to put in? Even if you have a great idea, if you put 50% of the money, you get 50% of the shares. It's not like huh. because of your ideas, we're going to give you 20% more. And you think that, that we import those ideas to the, I mean, so the Iranian community in, in LA or in Southern California that you'd be familiar with, uh, have you found it more difficult to get uh, Iranian investors than American investors because of that, if you have a great idea, for example? No, no, no. Actually, here people have changed. And I know so many Iranians who are dealing with each other, making a lot of money. The idea has a high value, just like in American society. I know at least 10 Iranians who are investors, the, the venture capitalists. So not nah, over here, they have learned that this is the way to do business. But if you go to Iran today and want to raise money for some project, your idea has zero value. It's like your money. Yeah. 
You've been a successful executive, as we've talked about, in a few different countries. You're a management master. You've written about management skills. You also call yourself, uh, Farhad, a very creative person. How, how yeah. do you – tell me about the, the fusing creativity and management. How do you use creativity in management? Well, I have an open mind trying to solve the problems. I'm always an out-of-box thinker. I don't confine myself to a box saying that I should come up with a standard answer and this is the answer. I can think anywhere. I mean, think about one item. We Every company in Iran gives their employees loans if they can because if they go to a bank, they have to pay 20 25% interest rate. The companies can afford to pay this loan with a high, lower interest rate. But at the same time, these loans, uh, to me, it's like, why should the company get involved with the kind of loan or stuff like that? Meanwhile, we had these people coming to us saying that, hey, give me a loan, give me a loan. I need this, I need that, I want to get married. So at the same time, our board of directors had approved a $5 million toman at that time, $5,000 credit for customers who want to buy a truck. I was against it from day one because I knew that trying to get our $5,000 back is pulling teeth. It's not going to happen. And sure enough, it happened that we could not collect the money. The guy just said, don't have it. And at the same time, we have these people who ask for a loan. I said, well, why don't I do this? I connect these two together. I told employees that if you can collect this kind of money from these guys, the money is your loan. You don't pay any interest on yeah. it. You have to return it back in so many years. And there are some of them that more than enthusiastic to do this. And when the driver pulled into our service department, they just go and demand that, hey, you got to give us the money. <laughs> and in most of the cases, they got the money. Because now there were one person who was focusing on it, calling the guy every day, becoming a, you know, bug, <laughs> you know, uh, the, giving him trouble in terms of just calling, calling, calling. We didn't have to have the big accounting department that can call all these people every day and right, bug them right, for the money. Right. So this is like one very simple thing that how you can, you know, solve two problems with one shot. Let me get back to this uh, this traveling thing because it, it is a fascinating part of who you are and who you've become, and and a big part of your your presence in social media where you're very popular. When did um, we've talked about your your interest in traveling when you went to India as a kid? You were talking about going from London to Tehran and how that was uh, an early indicator to you of how much you enjoyed traveling as you waved your way through Europe, getting getting to Iran. Uh, but when did your love of traveling become an actual mission to visit over 200 countries and territories around the world? I had visited almost 75 countries when one of my friends who is also a traveler, she has traveled now for to more than 100 United Nations countries. She has been to uh, Antarctica one year before I did. Uh, she told me that, hey, Farhad, uh, you have to become a member of this the Traveler Century Club. I said, what is that? So she explained to me what the club is. I found the club on the internet. And I found that, well, these guys count the world differently. It's not the United Nations countries. They're counting territories too. So Guam is a territory, but for them it counts as one, just like you've been to U.S., you've been to Guam. And even Alaska and Hawaii, they counted separately because of the distance between the mainland and these places, and the culture being different and all that. So it was like 329. I started looking into that, and I found that I'm already at 85. I'm no longer at 75 because I've been to Guam, 
not Guam at that time. I've been to uh, Puerto Rico. I've been to Virgin Islands and so on and so forth, Alaska, Hawaii. So it was like 85, and I said, well, I'm very close to 100. Why don't I try hard to make it to 100? So, of course, the next 15 countries or territories came very, I mean, I did it maybe in a year or two. I became a member of that club. Getting that club, I feel like I'm the most junior person, 100 countries only. Everybody else I talked to, I've seen 200, 250, <laughs> 300. So I made it my mission that I want to go see 150. So I started arranging it. I got it to 150. Then I was going to make it like 200. At the close to 200, I felt like I need to finish United Nations countries first because that's the one that people understand. If I tell people I've been to Guam, they said, hey, Guam is not a country. If I tell them I've been to Alaska, Alaska is not a country. Right, so right. I better finish the countries first. And another problem was when you talk to some members who've been to more than 200 and they tell you, I've been to 220 countries, you say, this guy's lying because there's only 195 UN right, countries. Right, right, right. So I decided to make it, you know, the 195. So in 2019, actually 18 and 19, I focused on these countries and I made it to 192 out of 195. The only three I did not see was North Korea, which as a US citizen, you're not supposed to travel there. It was Eritrea. I applied three times. They rejected me for whatever reason. I don't know. Libya, where someone has to invite you from inside, and the country was in chaos at the time and still maybe is. So these are the three that I missed. Other than that, every one of them, I've been there. How addicted are you to racking up the numbers? Like if you if you were traveling from uh, Switzerland to Austria, would you make a beeline to make sure you put your foot in Liechtenstein if you haven't got oh. that on the list yet? Not only me, I think most of the members of this club are like that because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I've seen people in my travels in some corners of the world that nobody will go there. When I see another person in the hotel, the first question is, are you a member of the Traveler's Century Club? They <laughs> right. say, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> so I'm guessing by what you just said, and because it would get yeah. too confusing in terms of putting any sort of measurements on it, I'm guessing it's just about putting your foot on the ground somewhere. You don't have to be there for a week. You don't have to uh, have a, you don't have to eat a meal there. You, you could just get in the country yeah. and out. That counts, right? A stopover counts. That's true. You know, some people ask me, how could you go to a country and stay there for one day or half a day or, you know, whatever? I say, well, you know, there's different kind of tourism. My kind of tourism is, you know, just step, you know, going to each country, maybe one, two, maybe three days. Of course, having said that, well, I've lived in Taiwan for one year. If I add up the number of days I've been in Germany, France, the UK, each one of them, I probably have spent more than six months in each one of them at different times. But there are many countries that I've seen only for half a day because the way you could travel to this particular location, there was only one flight in and out per week. Right. And I did not want to waste my time one week in some barren island just because I want to say I've seen everything in that island. And for those people who believe that, oh, you will not learn the culture in one or two days, I've lived in Iran for many, many years. I can still not claim that I know the culture of my country or every <laughs> corner of the country. So for the people who think that in one month they're going to learn everything about the culture, whatever, I'm sorry, I don't buy into that. So the question is, which one is enough? Is it one month enough or one day enough? They're different kind of tourists. The way I've been brought up in this club, it's like short period, you just go see you know, as much as you can see and then out. Now, the, the hardest part for me would be 
uh, as somebody who loves to travel, and I, I don't think I've done the count, but I, you know, I, I'm somewhere, I don't know, maybe I'm at 50 or something uh, in terms of places I've been as a product of being a guy who's a touring musician for a while. I got to go to a lot of places and, and for work as a, in media, I've traveled. But the difficulty for me is I fall in love with some places. So uh, it's always a question, you know, I love Berlin, for example. So every time I want to go to a new place, I'll ask myself, well, do I want to go to uh, Bolivia? I've never been to Bolivia. Or I already know I love Berlin, or I have friends in London, or I could drive to New York. You know, I mean, now, I don't think you can do what you've done and keep returning to the same place, right? So, So how do you let go of the idea of, of seeing places that you love, of returning to places you love, of seeing people that you've met again, etc. Well, my goal was you go to each place once, as much as possible, not twice, even though I have ended up going to some places three times, if you want to count it. Like Fiji Island, I've been there at least three times, not because I wanted to, but because it was a hop for going to all those right, islands, right. Palau, etc., etc. So you end up going there more than once, but you don't want to because that's the only way you could travel to that part of the world. But my goal was to go to each place only once until I'm done with my mission. Now, whether this mission is seeing only the UN countries or the entire Traveler Century Club countries and territories, then if you had money, if you had time, if you were healthy still, go back and visit some of those places you, you want to visit more than once. That was my mission in life and still is. So I'm still doing the one as much as I can. I try not to repeat uh, going to San. I've been to Greece 45 years ago. You know, I'm sure it was totally different from the from today. But I don't intend to go there, even though it's beautiful. I know there's beautiful islands that I've not been to. I've been only to Athens, but because I already have counted it, I don't have any inclination to go back to Greece until I've seen these other places that I've not seen at all. I mean, there's also the point that within each country, especially large, geographically large countries, there is such a diversity of things. Even in Iran, there's so much to see in traveling within Iran. If you were to say, I visited Canada, and I'd say, where? And you say, well, I've been to Vancouver. I would say, well, then you've missed the Rocky Mountains, or you've missed the the Majestic North, or you've missed the the fisheries of the East Coast, or you've missed Toronto, or what? You know, so it's, I guess it's it's not easy, but if you're using national borders, you at least have that as a, as a, a metric. Yeah, that's, you know, again, I would say there are many ways of being a tourist. You can be medi-tourist, go for medication to different countries where the medications is cheap or medical services are cheap. You can be a religious tourist, go to uh, the places where there are churches and stuff like that. And uh, there are people who each time they go to one country, spend one month, they try to learn as much as possible in that one month. For me, or maybe the other members of Traveler Century Club, it's a little bit faster pace and uh, more about being in each place at least once or at least the center of that country or some point in that country once. And then uh, once you have seen them all, then you can go back and visit some of those other places for the second time. Even if it's faster pace, do you have a routine at this point when you get to each new country? Is there one thing that you make sure that you do? Yeah, what I normally do, I don't go to tourism. I mean, I, I don't go to the museums. That's one thing because it takes a lot of time. And I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm not into arts at all. Somehow I have no appreciation for arts. That's my negative point. So going to a museum, seeing some whatever, you know, I just 
that doesn't make sense for me. I'm not a religious person, so I don't go to any church or mosque or anything like that. So what I do is usually take a taxi with English-speaking taxi driver. I want I ask him to drive me around the city, tell me what's the average wage in that place, what's the average price of the houses in that place. Take take me to a very rich area. Let me look at some of those houses and tell me how much they are. Take me to some of the poor areas. Tell me how much those houses are. So try to learn as much as possible on current status of the country. Uh, that's my you know that could be like a one day trip. You know, if it had to be extended for another day or two, would be some other cities like, uh, you know, want to go some other famous cities for whatever reason. You know, I visit those places, but it usually happens with the English speaking taxi driver. And that's it. A lot of the places you've been to, um, uh, you've been to in the last 20 years or even the last 10 years uh, as a man in your 60s, it's hard on the body, right? Like I love Southeast Asia. And so I've returned many times to go to Philippines or Vietnam or, or Cambodia, etc. But uh, or Taiwan. Uh, but uh, coming back and the jet lag and that it, it, it's it's tough. It's tough to stay healthy through all that and and not let it beat you up a little bit in your body. How do you, how do you manage that? I think my interest in traveling is so high that it overcomes all these other negatives. I, I went one time, I went around the world in eight days. And I think in those eight days, I slept only three days in a hotel or three nights in a hotel. That means that the rest of it was in the airplane. But I enjoyed the whole thing. And when I returned, I was not tired. It was like even I was full of energy. I was even happy that I've done that. I've gone around the world in eight days as opposed to 80 days of Jules Verne. So that's, to me, that never was a problem. What do your friends and family uh, make of all your traveling? Well, my daughter, the older one, likes it, and she's been to 55 countries so far. The younger one has been to 30 countries with me, but she has not attempted to do it by herself. That means that she's not into traveling that much, at least not yet. But the older one definitely is into it, and she plans just like she wants to become a member of Traveler Century Club, and at the age of 30, she has seen 55 countries. Wow. Not bad. She caught the bug. She caught the bug. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, I mean, but have you had friends or people that you know who've just kind of rolled their eyes or gone, you know, like, what are you doing with all this travel, oh. or does everybody think it's a, a great thing? I know. I have some friends who completely think I'm crazy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who is into wine. And he spends all his money, not all his money, but he spends a lot of money on uh, very expensive bottles of wine. And when he tells me that, what do you get from this traveling? I said, what do you get from the expensive wine? <laughs> he says, oh, the wine, I enjoy it. I said, I enjoy traveling too. So who says that your fun is more fun that, than my fun? <laughs> so if the idea was to uh, reach as many of the 195 United Nations countries as possible, which you've already done, except for those three outliers we talked about. And I'm sure right. you can get to Libya at some point. Uh, you said, once I accomplish that, I'll go to the, I can go back to the places that I, I fell in love with or that I really loved. So, I mean, that's the million dollar question, obviously. Where, where would you, given your druthers, if it was going to, if you were going to return to a place uh, mm -hmm. of all these 200 places you've been to, what comes to mind? Uh, you won't believe it, but uh, probably it's going to be Nepal, uh, Kathmandu. There's an airplane right there, Buddha Air. They take you around Mount Everest to take a look at it. Mm -hmm. And at that time when I went there, it was like $120 ride. And it was like a 
you will see it guaranteed or your money back. I took that ride three times in a row and every day it, we ended up with fog. I could not see Everest. That's another goal in my life that I want to see the highest peak of every continent. I've seen some of them. I've seen the McKinley in Alaska. I've seen the one in South America. Uh, so this was the highest one. And I'm always interested in mountain climbing. Not that I've done it myself. Not that I can do it myself. But always is intriguing for me watching these Everest movies and how people go through all these challenges to get up there. So first chance, I like to go back to Nepal. And also, I want, I want to be another goal of me is to land in every difficult airport in the world as much as possible as a passenger. And there's an airport there uh, the, near Everest that I like to go there. And uh, that's the Tenzing Hillary Airport, which was made by Hillary uh, the Sir uh, Hillary, uh, who uh, the, the, the Edmund conquered Mount, yeah. Mount Everest. Yeah. Yes, so it's one of the dangerous mountain, the dangerous airports in the world. I have to go there. You know, the the Paru in Bhutan is another difficult, strange airport. I've been there. So yeah, Nepal is the one that comes to mind. Um, I definitely, I'm not a kind of guy who enjoys a relaxing time around the beach or beautiful place or whatever. That's not me. I have to go learn something or uh, do something a little bit more productive. What is the most spectacular city? What, what is the city in the world that everybody in the world should visit? There's so many of them. I just can't remember. You know, if you told me what's the best scene you've ever seen. I've seen so many beautiful jungles and beaches in different countries in Africa in other but places. But what city do you love? What city do you I just love? What would, where would you go back to immediately? I really I have no preference. Besides, uh, besides Ahvaz. <laughs> well, Ahvaz, actually, I, I was in Ahvaz maybe 10 years ago or no, more than that. As a part of seeing all uh, states of Iran or Ostans of Iran. Oh, so you I have done that. that. You've done the Iran yes, tour as I've well. Done, I thought that, you know, the, if I tell people that I've been to the entire world, I've been to all U.S. states, somebody's going to ask me, how about your own country? Right. So I had to have that answer ready. So I I seen all those all those states too. Yeah, I've seen actually half of the states of China. When I talk to people from China, I mean none of them have seen even more than five states, and I've seen eighteen of their states. Oh, Farhad, I know these these are not uh, easy questions to answer. They're 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 sort of um, wide eyed, uh, you know, answers uh, uh, or questions a kid would ask uh, uh, sitting at the feet of their their grandparent or somebody who's you know done amazing things in their life. But but what if you were to be able to answer this simply? What would you say you have most learned? I feel like. In my experience, traveling is education. You, you know, you just, you absorb so much as you go to a new place and you, you, you witness a new culture, you feel a new energy. What would you say you have most learned from doing all the traveling that you've done? Hard to tell. It's like each place is unique. People have different cultures, different beliefs. What's good in one country is not good in another country, and there's nothing wrong with any one of them. There's just people are different, and you have to learn that there's a you know difference between the people. You cannot make everybody the same. Yeah, that, that's that's all. It's like not much that I can say I have learned necessarily from different cultures, but I enjoy the fact that, for example, when I go to China, when I talk to Chinese people, 
the fact that I can use a few words. I, by the way, I have tried to learn seven languages. Not that I've learned any one of them, except English and Persian. But just like anybody else, I had Arabic in school. Then uh, the, I took French and German in the university. Then I took the Spanish when I was working, running a factory in Mexico. And I learned Mandarin a little bit. I took a three-month course before I go to Taiwan. So the fact that I can talk to them, the fact that I can bring up a few cultural issues with them, for example, the numbers four and nine, they don't like it. Sometimes even they make the buildings, like just like number 13 in some other cultures. Their buildings, sometimes they don't have the fourth floor or ninth floor. You go straight from third to whatever. Right. Or they want to celebrate their birthday. They don't celebrate 40th birthday. They celebrate 39 twice, and then they jump to 41. Right. So these are little things that you know happens that you learn, and uh, the, each one of them is something interesting. It's a pleasure getting to talk to you. Before I let you go, let me ask you a couple more questions about your social media presence. Um, when did you have the idea to, to set up an Instagram channel? When did that become a thing for you? A uh, friend of mine who works for Tesla, uh, I the, told him to go work for Tesla. The same one who was working for you that's now an executive? Yes. At, okay, yeah. Yeah. He returned the favor. I found him, a, I told him, go find a job that pays you. He found me a job that doesn't pay me. Just, you know, spend, <laughs> I have to spend my time making nothing out of it. But anyways, he told me that, hey, why don't you do uh, Instagram? And I said, well, how do I do it? He showed me actually step by step. This is how you do it. And that's what I did. And uh, next thing I knew, I had 400 followers, 1,000 1, followers, 2,000 followers, and now almost 100,000 followers. So it's all, you have to blame him for that. So it was not my idea. Are you surprised at how popular it has become? Yes, I am surprised. At the same time, when I was writing for Machine Magazine, the owner was telling me that their subscription is like at 100,000 level. In Iran, of course, people try to boost their numbers to make it look good, except the time they want to pay you, then they make it as low as possible. So I was used to this number of 100,000 subscribers who read my articles every month. Of course, I was not used to the same 100,000 reading my other articles or things about traveling, about whatever, because in those, those articles uh, was all about cars, airplanes, and motorcycles, where supposedly I had 100,000 people who were reading those. Uh, so at the same time, that's a big number. I'm kind of used to it. I mean, it's quite amazing to see how how big it's grown. Your posts are mostly in Farsi. Where, right. where, and who is your audience? Are there a lot of people tuning in from Iran? I, I, I think it's like probably 90% are in Iran. And that's actually my audience. That's why I don't do any programs in English because I feel like nobody over here needs to hear from me about traveling or cars or whatever. They have access to all kinds of sources. But people over there, probably because of language barrier, they may need that more than anybody else. And we need to have a cultural change over there if we're going to have a successful country. So with that in mind, I just make it in Persian and I enjoy it. Um, you, you have a post from a couple of weeks ago that has 200,000 views already. It's just you sitting in a car. A lot of you, a lot of the time you're in your car, which I love, talking about Iranian politics. Then you have another one about electric bicycles from a week earlier. <laughs> That's 225,000 clicks. 
it seems like, I mean, if you were to pitch this idea to me that I'm going to get on the internet and just talk about things and uh, talk about a variety of things, the kind of variety that you talk about, I would not believe that you're going to get hundreds of thousands of, of streams or, or of clicks. Uh, how do you decide what you're going to talk about? Well, because I have this program on a daily basis, I have no choice. It's like anything that comes to my mind, I'm going to make a video out of it. Uh, whether it's a political thought or there's a, you know, there's a construction going on somewhere that I feel like it could be interesting for some people. Maybe it's my electric bike. And, uh, you know, I had one program about the Jeep that belongs to my friend. It's got two and a half million yes. viewers so far. Yeah. So, yeah, when I did that, if you ask me, what do you think this is going to do? I would say 20,000 maybe. Well, it did 2.5 million or maybe more. So I don't know. I, all I know is if it's only talk, it's in 10 to 20,000 range. But when it things involved, uh, whether it's a bicycle or it's a car or it's a construction site or there's a street or road, people are more interested. These are things that to, to them is like foreign. They want to see those things. But let's be clear. You are, and I know you're probably too, too modest to talk about it this way, but you are doing something that really connects with people in a way that most people can't because especially during quarantine, you know, everybody started zooming, everybody started their own video channel. Everybody started, you know, right. everyone had the same idea. I'm going to start a, you know, Instagram channel or something like that. And right. most people just don't get those kinds of, of clicks. There is something that you're doing that is really appealing to folks out there. And by the way, one of some of them are you just, you, your face talking to camera, uh, that one about right. Iranian politics from a couple of weeks ago that has, 200,000 views is just you talking in your car to the camera. Uh, it's, it's, right. it's quite fascinating. Yeah. Well, some of them, I, I still I have to admit, I never study Instagram to see the charts or where the customers or followers are coming from. I don't follow. So I do it very simple way. I just put my program and all I see is like there's 100,000 followers. That's it. But trying to analyze and make more programs of the type that people enjoy the most, that's just not me and I'm not doing that. So it just happens by accident that some of those get more reviews and some get less. I've heard some different things like if you put your program on certain hour and in the next first hour something happens, then Instagram will forward your thing to more places. All of a sudden you get more people watching it. Those I don't understand it <laughs> and I don't I don't do it. <laughs> it hasn't hurt your, your audience at all. You're doing very yeah, well. And one thing I have to say that in the early days of my career, when I was a supervisor and uh, trying to make reports and stuff like that, I had a boss who was a philosopher. His name was Bob Brookman. He told me that, hey, Farhad, do you want to write something, an email or whatever? Make it at the second class level. That means that, and I was saying that you mean these vice presidents, whatever, they're not educated, they need to be. He said, no, no, it's not a matter of education. When you write it very simple, people understand it quickly. Hmm. If you put something with a lot of verbiage and complicated, they don't re read it immediately. They set it aside so whenever they have time, they go back and read it. And chances are they will never read it because then by the next week you have more things coming, they will never read it. So I learned from that that make it simple. Don't try to use a lot of complicated words. Don't try to make it 
you know, mouthful, whatever, for people who don't understand it, try to come down at the lowest possible level so everybody can understand it. Where will the um, the 67-year-old kid uh, go next? What is your, your next on your agenda? I have made a plan to go to every national park in the U.S. That's more than 60 of them, nine of them in California. I have prepared my RV camper, and uh, I've taken already two trips. I'm waiting for some generator to be fixed on that to go to my third one. My goal is... At the end of you know the process, I've seen all sixty of them because these are the ones who are the most famous ones. There must be a reason for them to be famous. So I want to see all of them. That's the, my next goal right now. Well, your your passion is an inspiration. Your passion for travel and life and and not letting anything be a barrier to you. I thank you for the time today. I thank you for the the wisdom and the, and the storytelling. And I look forward to to seeing you in person before too long. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks to your audience for watching this program or listening to this program. Uh, I really appreciate it, too. Merci, Farhad. Good office. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Farhad Kashani, an author, a pilot, a former CEO turned popular social media commentator who has made it his mission to travel to every United Nations recognized country in the world. You can find him on Instagram at Farhad Kashani. Farhad joined us from the Bay Area California today. Microphone's back on for Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, and the fabulous Keon. How about that, Farhad? That's amazing, man. What a story, <laughs> this guy. Wow, wow, wow. Which part are you wowing about? <laughs> Which part am I? Aren't I'm I wowing? I'm an I. Which part aren't I wowing about? No, but to, uh, he, the, he, this guy is a true businessman. How he was able to take advantage of uh, his color blindness and turn it into a, essentially a profitable business an opportunity an opportunity yeah. really was mind-blowing for me i learned a lot thanks Farah john it, it was different from all the people we, we usually introduce yes yes i thought so Very too yeah. yeah i mean this is another category you know a manager a, 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 a car yeah. critics mm. and you know mm-hmm. a traveler it's it's really interesting I, I enjoyed it i liked that actually that we're it's a voice from i he sounds familiar to me uh, yes. There's members of my family or people I know that were have been business people and that you know, but but we haven't had a lot of those voices mm-hmm. on our show. We have a lot of artists and uh, thinkers, and uh, not that he's not a thinker, but yeah, uh, it was nice to hear that that kind of voice. I actually really really appreciated um, his. I mean, I said it in the interview, but his notion of where he says, I, "If I could, I'd take the fourteen dollars." Uh, an hour yes. and start at Tesla right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, this idea that um, the confidence that he has and the knowledge that he has that if you go somewhere and just work hard enough mm-hmm. and get your foot in the door, mm-hmm. you can, you can, and I, I really do believe that. I mean, I believe what I said during the interview there with, where, especially in the, in the fields that I've been in, it's not that hard to ascend once you get your foot in the door if you just work your ass off you know if you work your ass off dedicate yourself to it and so that but you got to have that kind of 
ethic and that and that the passion he has yes. and the, the whole idea of what did he call it um I reverse engineered my uh, yes. my background, like it, downplaying his experience, yes. so that he can get in the door and then blowing people away. It's it's so interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's I guess part of his management strategies. Keon, sorry, I'm busy making a list of all the countries I need to visit. Right, right, right. This man is putting me to shame. My God, you know what else I'm really impressed about? The fact that he has such a massive social media following. My dad can barely email, and this guy's. I know. You know. Well, I, I it was a weird. You don't want. You know, I didn't want to be ageist. But it, yeah. that's that's part of what I find fascinating. He's right. you know almost seventy years old, yeah. and and it, and it's not that he is. I mean, there are um, older folks like in the boomer mm-hmm. category, let's right. say, who are big on social media, mm-hmm. but it's because they're superstars or something. They're that's well known right. already. Yeah. He's built this following. Yeah, you know, and it, and and how often do you see that? I mean, it's not amazing, often, yeah, especially yeah. in the Persian community. People of this, I'm telling you, my dad, every email he would get, like, you want a million dollars, like, like virus. <laughs> Nigerian <laughs> prince. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, dad. Oh. <laughs> so it's impressive. Also, uh, what he said about the Instagram that he's uh, following is mostly in Iran. And he said that the only way that we can have a hope for the better future is to educate yeah. people mm. inside of Iran, yeah. which is 100% true. Yeah, I feel like he's really got, he, that's part of his mission. He didn't, yes. uh, you know, I mean, he, we talked about his traveling and his fun stories of experience. But I, if you look at his Instagram, it does feel like he's, he's doing his mm-hmm. part to kind of yes. educate those who are yes. listening to him and watching him from Iran. Yeah. Uh, I wonder. I mean, he's um, his fans know him mostly in in Persian. I hope they'll uh, check out this interview as well. Um, all right, Farhad Koshani, you can find him on Instagram, as we know. A, a big thank you once again as well to Reza Ghazi and Greenflow Financial. Greenflow Financial is a multi-award winning mortgage lending and brokerage firm with offices based out of Toronto and Ottawa. You know, I've seen Reza Ghazi out and about over the years, the founder of Greenflow, and I can attest to the fact that he is tireless and passionate about community work, philanthropy, helping our society and Persians in general. Thank you to Reza and Greenflow Financial, go to greenflow.ca. All right, it's Monday. It's that time. Letters of the week. Waiting for Resolega Orchestra. It's turned into a conductor. What do we got? The letters right. of the week. No, by the way, the letter of the week gets under our website now. Yes, yes. Rookmedia.com. So. That's right. So starting off, uh, over the weekend, we posted a Rook funny about the time that Jian uh, went to a mechanic to fix his car in rural Ontario, only to learn that he had to speak Persian. That's right. Moshtaba. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My story Love of Moshtaba. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a few people wrote to that. We you, have can, a, you can find that on, uh, uh, well, on our Instagram. That's right. Say, yeah. yeah. We have a Puria Afghami wrote, and th- by the way, this is in uh, Persian, like he wrote in Persian letters, and Afghami. I translate Afghami, but actually, he wrote, Hamisha Poya Yek Moshtaba Dar Mivanast. Dar Mivanast. Mivan? Yes. Oh, I, I okay, like my Farsi is not that great, I guess. <laughs> there is always a Moshtaba. <laughs> All right, and then we have Mohammad Muadeli. So that's what that the that's translation what is. Yeah. There's always there's a Mushtaba. Yeah. 
I think that's exactly what I said too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then Mohamed Moadali wrote, I feel exactly the same as my Swedish is not as good as others. Whenever I'm stuck in a situation that I must elaborate something in detail, I have no choice but to start speaking English while others look at me in a way that conveys the message that he's not one of us. <laughs> Wait a second. He, he, my Swedish is not. So is yeah. he writing from he's, Sweden? He's writing from Sweden, yeah. Okay, that would have been right. helpful, Kia. Well, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought it was pretty clear. How was that clear? Why would he be speaking Swedish? <laughs> okay, so I, I was trying to follow it. What's he's, <laughs> I got a little confused, yeah. too. I'm like, why Trust is he speaking Keon. Swedish? Wait, you guys don't know Swedish? I thought it was a You know, if you'd spend a little less time chirping about uh, <laughs> Italy winning the Euro Cup and a little more time looking at these letters, All right, I'll it speak. wouldn't be as confusing. I'll do it in Swedish next time. <laughs> and then also, last week on episode 125, we had legendary Iranian-American photographer Firuz Zahidi on the show. And if you haven't lear- listened to this episode, I can't encourage you enough to. It was probably my favorite. One really? Of, one of my favorite. Wow. Yeah, it was just... It, oh, I enjoyed every minute of it okay Hope, starting out we have Arash Fazilipur wrote what a great interview and what amazing stories he's so humble and easy to listen to sad that it had to end thank you guys the, the interview that yeah. is yeah yes. Fidu yeah. Zahidi is still alive yes. and well <laughs> <laughs> thank you Arash and then we have Katy, last name KV wrote incredible stories from his childhood to his journey to Hollywood stars yeah yeah and then Sina Khajavi am I saying that right yes oh wow right. surprised the Shia police give you a <laughs> thumbs up at him. Yeah. <laughs> he wrote Rook's best show yet oh awesome that's a that's interesting huge. high bar and then we have Ninoush wrote, Jianjian, this is one of the best by far. Loved every minute of it. Thank you. Wow. People mm-hmm. really like this I episode. Eh? I liked yeah. it too. I, How it's could one they of my not? personal favorites as well. Yeah. It was like listening. You didn't to say that last week. I did. I did. Actually, all did. of a sudden. I did. I did. I did. I did. I did. Yeah, I really like this one. He, 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 we didn't hear a peep from him yeah, last week. Yeah. No, you guys were consumed by the, the, the hypothetical idea of me stalking oh, yeah, Elizabeth right. Taylor. <laughs> you didn't right. even listen to what I was about to say that's about right. the interview. That's right. We were talking about how me. you... <laughs> would be a creep. How, <laughs> pursuing how Peter Zahidi successfully became uh, Elizabeth Taylor's uh, yeah. you know partner for 40 years of yeah. being around her, but uh, Reza wouldn't last three hours. <laughs> or she would get a restraining order yeah. again. Can someone some please get this man away from me? <laughs> Can someone please call Scotland Yard? I need <laughs> help. Uh. <laughs> hey, I really liked you in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Um, thank you. Can someone help me? <laughs> Elizabeth, blink three times if you, need, if you need us to get rid of this man. <laughs> Uh, all right, <laughs> we have settled down, children. <laughs> and then we have Mitra Bakhshai wrote, Your interview with Firuz Zahidi was very interesting. I didn't know him before this. Thanks for your great and fantastic interviews. Thank you, Mitra. Appreciate mm-hmm. that letter. It's time for Letter of the Week. Oh! Woo! 
letter of the week. All right. This gentleman has been writing to us, I I swear, almost every episode. Really? And every time, I really want to give him the letter of the week, but there always, something else comes up. And, but this time, he Uh, he gets- What else comes up? Like someone else writes something more magnificent, more- You know, incredible it's not that you get his. distracted by yeah, the, no, you know, no. Like, so you want to give them the letter of the weekend. <laughs> well, I get distracted. You're busy with your smoothie. <laughs> and you forget that. Uh, or if England losing. Keon, uh, or keep trolling Keon. Or trolling me. Oh, this week's letter of the week goes to Turaj Khosravi. So he writes, I really, really enjoyed this one. The highlight of the episode for me was talking about Barbara Streisand. And I wish you were talking more about her instead of Liz Taylor. Haha. <laughs> That's surprising. (laughs) And Jian John, I admire you as an Iranian man who had the chance to interview her. Let me bow down to you virtually, (laughs) in brackets he has. That was really silly of me to say, but I love her badly. Sending you all warm hugs from Ireland. P.S. Fingers crossed if this one becomes the letter of the week. Well, you did it. You got letter of the week. (laughs) I love that Turaj is in Ireland. Yeah. I mean, I I wonder. I've never heard of Persians in Ireland. I... I'm, have you have you been to Ireland? I mean, I've been to Ireland Farhad style, which okay, is like just by, for like a day. Yeah. I, I don't really consider it. Uh, no, I mean, I would love to visit yeah. Ireland and spend time there. Just thinking that there's a Persian community there, that's kind of, oh, I don't, well, I we don't know. This that is a, it. The community is just, <laughs> just Turaj. I got Turaj, he's like, I admire you. Like, I'm always going to say something really great about my work. Or I admire you as an Iranian guy who met Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I could have met her, oh, I, who interviewed her? I you know, met her in a shopping mall. And I <laughs> admire so you funny. as a, John, I admire you as an Iranian man who yeah. is, Meeting Barbara Streisand. <laughs> Barbara S. Streisand. Well, that's great. Turaj Khosravi will be the one of the first people inducted into our website, uh, Letters of the Week Hall that's of Fame. Right. That's right. Uh, it's so a great honor. Turaj will put you. <laughs> I know it's like we're announcing it as such a big deal. It's like they're like, okay, you will be on a what website. do I? I'm on a website. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean this is you know forever. The digital oh. footprint of yes. this letter will be on our site forever. Mm. forever. Rook Media. He's regretting it now. He's like, I wish I wrote something better. <laughs> Should use my real name. Huh? <laughs> uh, thank you, Turaj. Thank you, Reza Ghazi. Thank you, Farhad Kashani. Thank you. Uh, Groovy Shia, Captain Reza, the fabulous Keon. This is full time for Rook for today. For all things Rook, including Turaj Khosavi's uh, letter of the week, go to rookmedia.com where you can become a patron of this program by pressing the support us button at rookmedia.com. Support us and become a patron. We really appreciate it. $5, $10 a month makes a big difference to us. Thank you to the amazing team who put this show together each week. Producer Susan Ponta, the artist, the fabulous Keon, thoughtful Nagin, Super Patty Saw, Savvy Roham, Sponsorship Sean, Aurey Merdad, Captain Reza and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you have not done so already. And find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashir.